there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Are you interested in the cosmetics or skincare industry? If so, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the founder and CEO of one of the world's leading natural cosmetics companies that she started 25 years ago. And guess what? She's not a cosmetologist. (laughs) But before I introduce you to Jane Iredale, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive peek inside the episodes and the professionals we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time4coffee.org and sign up. Now, my cosmetics-loving coffee quaffers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is the one and only Jane Iredale, the trailblazer for a clean mineral product, Cosmetics. Jane is the business owner of the eponymous makeup line, Jane Iredale Cosmetics. Jane started her career in the entertainment industry, working in film, television, and theater in New York and Los Angeles. But one day, about 25 years ago, she had enough and left to break into a brand new industry, cosmetics. We'll be talking about that and more, but first... Jane, welcome to Time for Coffee. It's a pleasure to be here. I have to ask you the question. Yes, here I have my cup of English breakfast tea. Are you caffeinated (laughs) and ready to go? Caffeinated and ready to go. All right, let's take a sip here. So it is such a thrill and an honor to have this opportunity to speak with you. I am such a huge fan of women who've made it. And women who've made it because they worked incredibly hard themselves and went through the ups and downs. And we will be digging into all of that. But the other reason it's such a thrill to be here in person with you is that I've been coming to the Berkshires with my husband and now with my 15-year-old son for 20 years. And you are based here in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, in the Berkshires. And we are renting an Airbnb that's just a few minutes down the road. And it's so fun to be in your headquarters. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to be. This is 7,000 person town, but it's like the microcosm of everything that I love. Surrounded by organic farms, interesting people. We're close to New York, close to Boston. We've got huge cultural life here with Boston Symphony and theater and dance and I think it's a unique place, really. I don't know anywhere in the world that can compete. Yeah, and actually looking out the window of your office here to see the beautiful mountains. And wildlife, bears and deer and coyotes, (laughs) you name it, we have it. Yes. Well, the other reason I should say that I'm fortunate enough to be sitting here today is because of our mutual friend, Ricky Ninomia, who I met 25 years ago in 1994. When you started your company. Exactly. Yeah. 
So thank you to Ricky. Yeah, thank you, Ricky. Thank you, Einstein. (laughs) That's right. Einstein is Ricky's dog. And your dog is Cookie, who is asleep on your desk right now. And may be joining us at some point. Yes, she will be. So I'm going to want to ask you in a few minutes Mm -hmm. about how you started your cosmetics company Mm -hmm. and how you were not and are not, I believe, a cosmetologist. Rather, you were a casting director than a writer and a producer in the entertainment industry. But first, I want to talk with you about Iredale Mineral Cosmetics. Mm -hmm. And for those of our young listeners who may not be familiar with your skincare line, what sets it apart from other makeup and cosmetics that are out there in the market today? And I recognize that the marketplace has changed since you first started this 25 years ago. So what is it that made you want to get into the mineral-based cosmetics? Mm. And what is it that makes it so special? Well, it's not something I wanted to get into. It's just something that occurred to me in the middle of the night, quite frankly, because I'd had this career in the entertainment world. By the way, I started out as a secretary in New York because I came over from England as a secretary, got my first job, and then I was taking a writing course at the New School, and I met somebody who elevated my career by taking me on as a trainee casting director, and that led to everything else. And in the process of that, worked with a lot of actors, models who were having trouble keeping their skins healthy because they were running from job to job to job, makeup here, makeup there, pancake makeup for the evening. And the challenge of having a healthy skin in those days before Photoshop really threatened careers. And when I got showbiz burnout, I was just lying in bed one night and thinking, what's wanted and needed? What's wanted and needed? And I suddenly had this epiphany at 3.30 about why couldn't we have a makeup that's good for the skin instead of something that people want to take off as soon as... I mean, I would be on sets and I'd watch the actors come running into the makeup room and say, just get this junk off me. And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. So because I knew nothing about makeup, nothing about no chemistry background of any kind, But I did have a friend who knew somebody in California who was a chemist. And the two of us got together and we started to fool around, take out things that we didn't like in the makeup that we thought was harmful to the skin. Things that were benign, like talc, for example, is used in almost all makeup. It doesn't do anything for the skin. In fact, it can have an aging effect on the skin. And then what we were left with was mineral pigments. And then we started realizing that they gave us a lot of coverage, sun protection, allowed the skin to breathe and function normally, made the skin look like skin rather than makeup. And we went from there. We took those basic mineral pigments and then we started adding things like antioxidants and botanicals. And you know, gradually it's evolved over the 25 years from started as a pure mineral pigment called Amazing Base. Because when I put it on people, the first words out of their mouth were always amazing. And then from there, it all sort of evolved into a more complete line. I love the marketing piece of that. You said, what should we call this? Everyone's saying it's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) That's true. So what does it mean when a product is labeled natural, certified, organic, or clean? Is there a difference? Is this all the same And how do we know which products to trust? Yeah, that is a very good question and one that people are struggling with all the time because there is no definition of natural. The FDA doesn't have a definition. Nobody has a definition. Everybody's making up their own definition. For some people, it means things that aren't in it. For some people, it means it's got to come right from the source, which 
can be really hard. For example, if you took iron oxides from the garden, they'd be full of heavy metals and the FDA would never allow them. They're natural, but does that mean they're good? Poison ivy is natural. So it's a very hard thing to get your arms around. When you're dealing with something that has a certified label, several of our products are certified EcoCert. That means that the organization certifying it has its own rules. So, for example, EcoCert wants to know how were the ingredients sourced? Do, are they sustainable? Do they have an effect on the environment when they're sourced? And then how are they used? And they have their list of ingredients that they're willing to certify and many that they're not. So do your ingredients fall within their approved list? And then what packaging are you using? Is that sustainable? And then how is the product being stored? Are you using extreme measures to store the product because you don't have preservatives in it? And are you using natural resources in order to be able to store it? And how much plastic are you using? How much glass? It's a very complicated issue. What we more and more go to is the word clean because we think that it better describes what we do, which is to remove anything that we think is harmful to the skin and to make sure that our ingredients are not damaging the environment, so sustainable palm oil, etc., so that we can feel good about the things that are in the products. But frankly, it's, it's a different definition for everybody. And the word natural is not something that we can legitimately use to describe anything. Because there is no definition. Because there's no definition. And, you know, if you ask yourself, what do you think of when you want to describe what you mean by natural? What would that be? Mm. Okay. Is it a leaf that you crush up and rub it on your face? I mean, there are plenty of leaves, essences of leaves that are used in cosmetics, but they're all manipulated in some way in the lab to extract what we need and then to preserve them. Preservatives go to dirty name now, but they're really essential because you could go blind from contaminated products. So it sounds like the word to be watching out for is clean. Yeah. And read the labels. When I started 25 years ago, nobody read labels. I'd hold a seminar for 100 people and I'd say, how many of you read the labels? And maybe one hand would go off. I've always read labels. When I food shop, so this the first thing I do is turn it over and see what's in it. But that's just because I'm a little bit fanatical. Most people don't read labels. More and more people are now. And when we had our first website up, we were the first brand ever to put the ingredients on the website. I still go in to look at brands and to look at ingredients and can't find them. Sometimes it's so small, you need one of those big magnifying glasses to be able to read it. Yeah. So Jane, you mentioned the amazing base. Yeah which is really what you're best known for, the mineral foundation. Yeah, well, we've got Amazing Base, which is a loose powder, and then Pure Press Base, which is really our most popular product. So we took Amazing Base and we figured out a way of pressing it. And then we have Liquid Minerals, which is the best seller in Japan, Ricky's absolute favorite, which is the little balls of liposomes, hyaluronic gel. Then we brought out a BB cream several years ago. And then this year, we're going to bring out Beyond Matte, which is a liquid mineral foundation. So as this is a show about professions, I want to pivot now into how you've done what you've done. And you've already alluded to getting to the point of burnout yes. in your job as a casting director yeah. and a writer and a producer. Yeah. But could you share a bit more as to how someone with that background ends up going into cosmetics? It was really a burnout situation. and. 
I felt very strongly that I wanted to do something to enhance women's lives. As I grew up in a country where women are not given the opportunities that they are here, for example, even though here it's not that easy either, I felt I started to get this burning about wanting to spend my life helping women. And this seemed like a way that I could make women feel good about themselves. There are studies now that show the better we feel about the way we look, the stronger our immune system is. So it actually has a physical effect on us as well as a mental. In our focus groups, women tell us that they do everything better when they feel better about the way they look, whether it's sitting at their desks or certainly at a party or raising their families. If they feel good about themselves, then everything works better. I think you have more energy. Yeah, I think you'll have more energy. I know if I'm slopping around the house and I haven't taken a shower, but once I'm ready and up and ready to go, it's a whole different feeling. So that was really important to me. I wanted to do something that I could feel really good about that made a contribution. question is, what was it? It certainly wasn't the entertainment world, which I find to be a very toxic environment. Writing is a very lonely, I love it, but it's a very lonely thing to do. And it wasn't exactly in line with where I felt my energy wanted to direct itself. And so I just said, I went to bed that night and I just kept going over what's wanted and needed and what's wanted and needed. I woke up the next morning. Well, I woke up in the middle of the night, came down the next morning. I'm staying with a friend in London and I said, I've got this idea about making a makeup and school for the skin. Do you think it's crazy? And she said, no, I'll write you a check right now. I'll be your first investor. So she wrote me a check for $5,000 and I came back to the States. And I asked my now husband the same question. He's a banker. So I thought he was bound to say, you know nothing about this. Huh? You are crazy. But he didn't. He said, I think you should go for it. And so what did you do? You had $5,000. You had your boyfriend telling you go for it. Yeah. So how I did you do friend. it? I called a friend. <laughs> I said... I've got this idea. Do you know anybody that I could, you know, a lab or something I could go talk to? And he said, oh, I've got this friend in California. And she's on the same quest. And she's a chemist. I had more of an idea about, not really marketing, but I knew I could sell. Because I can tell you about how I knew about that in a minute too. And so the two of us got together. And that was how it really evolved. That's fascinating. You said that this friend of yours yes. told you this chemist had a similar quest. Yes. She didn't really have the same quest as me, but she was already fooling around with mineral powders. What she do is she had them jars, and you kind of came in with a little spoon, and you sort of mix them up, and it was very, very tiny. And anyway, when we got together, we worked on the what became Amazing Base, and then it was my job to get it out into the world. How long did it take you from the time the two of you got together with her three jars and a yeah, spoon? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Before you landed on Amazing Base? Oh, I think probably close to a year. We had no formal way of testing anything. So, trying it on friends, a little sample pot, so we send out. Actually, it was a little sample pot that really started the ball rolling. How? Because I got it to an esthetician in the Oaks in Ojai, lovely spa out there, and run by a wonderful woman named Sheila Goff, and her makeup artist, Linda Wynn. Loved it immediately and started promoting it to the guests. They were lined up outside her door waiting for the next little pots to come in. I was in the kitchen with a stainless steel bowl and a whip, whipping up the powders, <laughs> filling little jars, and setting them out. And then one of them got into the hands of a plastic surgeon, wife of a plastic surgeon. And he was doing procedures, and he was in Seattle. And he was doing procedures that left the skin very, very red. 
and he needed something to cover it. And she took the powders back and he loved it. And he invited us to a small medical conference to show other doctors what we were doing. And that's how it all started. So I read an interview, Jane, in which you said you don't consider anything you did professionally in your life to have been a waste. And that includes your experience working in a toy store at a local department store over Christmas when you were 16 years old. I don't know where you dreamt that. Yeah, you're right. So how is that the case? I'm really interested in how your toy store experience has been relevant to you today. It's interesting you use those words because I use those words when I'm trying to describe to young people about how important it is to open themselves up to these experiences because you have no idea later in life how useful they're going to be and that you can tap into them. So my selling toys, how did I know at 16 and the Christmas rush selling Monopoly sets that I was going to figure out one that I could actually sell and two, that the customer experience was so important. So I'm a naturally enthusiastic person, and I find that if I'm enthusiastic about what I'm selling, then it's not selling anymore. It's just sharing my experience. And that's what I found selling toys, that if I liked it or believed it, it was easy. And that later on, I had a similar experience when I was in between entertainment world and actually making some money in cosmetic. I was doing a multi-level with super blue green algae selling it. And I'm sorry, a multi-level? I know, a what multi-level. Is well, <laughs> multi-level is like Amway. You know, you have you work your way up the ladder, the better salesperson you are. So I was suddenly selling super blue green algae and working my way up the ladder so fast that people were saying, how are you doing this? I said, I don't know. I'm just telling people about it and they buy it. So that gave me some confidence in the whole selling. But that was really minor to everything else that came together. So for example, my writing courses, I realized I had bit of a talent for writing, not so much for creative writing as for telling a story, a real story and editing. So making it concise, it came in so useful to me. And here, when I was the only writer and the only person doing app copy, it's, I can't impress enough this importance to experience everything that you can as you're developing your idea about where you want to go, where your passions are, where your interests lie. You know, gardening. I grew up in a family that gardened. You know, we grew all our vegetables and my mom, when she had the time, would like to prune her roses and so on. Gardening has become a passion for me. Now, that has been very important in what we do with our makeup brand because I know what the botanicals are and how we use them. And it's brought so much authenticity to the brand because we really do care about the health of the bees. Like We do one charity a year around the environment. Last year, it was about saving our monarchs. This the year, it's about the bees. Yeah. Next year, it's going to be about the oceans. All of this adds a dimension to the brand that people, women especially, really find important in their lives now. When we first started, authenticity wasn't a word that people used about brands. But over the years, it's become more and more important. People want to know who they're buying from and whether their values are the same, whether their philosophies are the same, whether they can align themselves and feel good about supporting that brand. And, and this is something we just came to naturally. Through all of these different disparate experiences that gelled into this. 
Jane, what advice do you have for our young listeners, especially those aspiring entrepreneurs, be they young men or young women, as to how to build a business from scratch? And I read somewhere that you didn't have a business plan when you started. I also read in an interview that when you started your casting agency, Mm. a fellow entrepreneur said to you, the secret to a successful business is doing what you say you're going to do. You have really done your homework. Yes. And that has been my mantra throughout my career. The day I heard that, I understood the ramifications of what that meant. It means that you don't overpromise, that you look carefully at situations and see, can I say yes to that? Because if I say yes, I'm going to have to do it. It creates credibility, authenticity. People have a sense of trust. If you want to get something done, give it to the busiest person you know. And that credo has really stayed with me my whole career. So does that mean kind of start small? Don't be overly ambitious? Well, I'm not sure that it means that. It means a way what it is you think you can do. Now, if somebody had given me a million dollars to start the company, I would have been able to promise a lot more than I could on 5000 And I'll tell you why I've had 5000 in a minute. It's a question of gauging what it is that you can do within the parameters you're given, but not feeling restricted by it. Somebody said to me, would you give a talk in front of 100 people, and I've only ever talked to 10 before. It doesn't mean I should say no to that. It means I should think about, can I do that? And if so, what would it be like? And what support do I need? And yes, I can do that. I think it's important to stretch yourself because I was terrified of public speaking in the beginning, terrified. So how did you get over it? By doing it, just by doing it. And what I found was that the more confident I was in what I was talking about, then the fear went. It's when I have to talk about things where there's some uncertainty that I get nervous. But now, if I share what's true for me, what's really sincere, then I don't have any nerves anymore. That's fantastic. So going back to that advice, do what you say you're going to do. Yes. Is there anything else beyond that? For our young listeners who say, maybe I want to start a business, what would you tell them today? Well, I think it's really important to say what is wanted and needed and what in today's jargon that means, where's the white space? I don't think that it's useful to be a copycat. There are a lot of copycat companies around and some make it and most of them don't. Take something that you have genuine interest in and not something that you think could be a success because you're going to have to tap into resources within yourself that you never dreamed of. And if you don't have that interest and love and enthusiasm, it's not going to happen. And you can't rely on other people to do it. It has to come from you because you want to be leading the pack. And if they don't feel that your interest is strong enough, then people don't follow you. So don't think about it as a get-rich-quick scheme. I think the people who go into it because they think, I'm good, this is where I can make some money. I don't know what the failure rate of that would be, but I'm sure it's immense. That doesn't mean that some people can't do it. There are some very clever people out there who can figure out how to do something just to make money. But most people don't, and they will need that real love. I don't keep using the word passion because I think it's overused, but it really does come down to that. 
You need an internal engine that's always revving up because it's feeding on that passion. Fantastic. So I would like to flash back, (laughs) way back to before you started your company, Mm. before you were a casting director, writer, Mm. and producer. And as you've already alluded, you didn't grow up in this country. You were born in the UK and you came over as a young woman and went to NYU, to New York University, where you majored in, (laughs) as we discussed before we started interviewing, sort of a melange of subjects. You almost created your own major that involved literature, philosophy, even geology. Correct. Did you know, Jane, what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? Absolutely no clue. No, and I didn't care. All I cared about was I wanted to be smarter and more educated and learn about things that had always mystified me. But I wanted, I really wanted my mom to have a graduate in her family, you know, see me graduate because I came from a family, I love my family, but they nobody had been to college and they had no means for me to be able to go to college. I had to go to work really early. So it was an achievement that I knew she'd be thrilled about. But for me, it was about... I mean, I used to come out of some class, geology, for example. Now, why would I take geology? Well, I'd always been interested in it. And it really paid off with my makeup car, minerals. I know what they are, where they come from, how they're formed. So I used to come out of those geology classes and I would skip down Fifth Avenue. You get that feeling of being in love. That was me coming out of my geology class. It was so exciting to be learning. It wasn't there for any other reason, not because I needed to get that so I could go on and get my master's and then go to law school. And It was just about the learning process. And you did actually go on to get yes, your master's. I did. You went to a SUNY in Albany. A SUNY in Albany. And I believe you got a master's in philosophy yeah. and English. Yeah, that's right. God, you're good. Yes. Yeah, but I'd started the company by then, so that was a real challenge. So did you develop any skills while you were getting your master's that have been useful to you in building your business? Endurance. (laughs) Because I had started the company then and I was working this whole phrase 24-7. That was me. I mean, literally pulling all-nighters all the time because it was just me. I was doing all the books. I was doing the selling. I was doing... The promoting, I was going out giving classes, I was traveling, start traveling on a Sunday. And because most of the spas and salon are closed on Monday, so that was when we had our classes. So I'd travel Sunday and then I'd do my class. I'd fly back Tuesday, then I'd work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. And in between there, I was trying to run to Albany to do classes and write papers. And so I would often be up all night long. It was, again, another instance of pure determined to do something and you say you're going to do it, whatever it costs, you do it. Why did you want to get the graduate degree if you'd already started the company and were clearly incredibly busy? I know. Again, I felt that I hadn't anywhere near come close to learning the things that I wanted to know about. And I still fear, even though I graduated, it took me a long time, that I didn't really have the opportunity to get the most out of it that I could. I mean, I did well enough, obviously, but I do envy the opportunity that a lot of people have to go to a university and just be there and do nothing but being immersed, surrounded by other people who are learning. 
professors who are there to help you, that kind of total immersion I would have loved. But my path was not that way, so I did the best I could. Because we should be more explicit about this, you worked not only while you were getting your master's, but you worked through college. Oh, absolutely. So in listening to you, Jane, I can already hear there are a number of qualities that you have that I think were really the secret sauce Mm. to building Jane Iredale Cosmetics into the incredible successful company that it is today. And that is your insatiable curiosity, Mm. your hunger for learning, Mm. and your grit. (laughs) Well, British grit. My parents went through the war and they sometimes I feel as though I'm the child of survivors because the war dominated our lives. Even though I didn't experience it, they did. And it was just a determination to come through it. To survive. To survive that I grew up with. And when I go back now, I just came back from London. I am still so moved by that whole period. The, I saw lines and lines of people outside of Churchill's war offices just standing and wanting to kind of soak up his courage. We should That's say it. that we've just passed the 75th anniversary Absolutely. of the end of yeah. World War II. Yeah. I know. And it's still very much Well, the beginning of the end, I suppose, with D-Day. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So it's front of mind for you. Front of mind. Every time I go home, it is. And it really saddens me when I realize how little generations know about that war and the effect it had on everyone worldwide. And they just aren't taught it. They don't know about it. So to go back to the business again, which you were building while you were in graduate school, I read that you said you had no mentors, right? but you did have a boyfriend who's now your husband who is a banker. If you could do it all over again, start the business all over again, what would you do differently based on the experience that you have gleaned over the last 25 years? The only thing I can think of that I would do differently, although I'm not sure how I would have done it because I didn't have any resources would have been in the design area. I didn't worry about the products because I knew they were really good. And that's all I cared about, really. But the packaging held us back for quite a while. It was hard to get people to take us seriously. I think people took us in spite of the packaging in the beginning because I was doing it and I didn't know anything about design. And I had no experience in that whatsoever. So I made a lot of mistakes. And it's taken a long time to recover from that and get through it. I mean, I think we're at a point now where we're in very good shape. We just got accepted by Bergdorf, so we're there. And I think if they take you, then probably are okay. Absolutely. Um, Bergdorf Goodman, for those who may not be familiar with it. And then, of course, internationally, Japan, you know how crazy they are about design. So it's the time to take us. So we've got there over the years. But in the beginning, it was... It was jars with white plastic caps and not much else. So that's one area I think if I'd paid more attention to that or understood more about that and how important that was, the brand would have grown faster. So I'd like to ask you a handful of questions that I try to ask all of my guests, Jane. And because we have young listeners who are just starting out in their career who think perhaps they might want to work for Jean Iredale Cosmetics, what are the qualities that you look for in the young people that you hire? We have a lot of opportunities because we hire interns as well as young people as full-time employees. We're looking for people who fit the culture. 
So I think that it's very important before you go on these interviews to really understand where you are going and who the people are and what they stand for. So that one, you can see whether you think it's a fit for you or not and don't waste your time as well as the company's time. And if it is, to go in prepared to show that side of yourself because we want to know when people come here they are going to understand our culture and our philosophy and fit in that. We're very philanthropic, so is that something that interests you or not? But I mean, we do care about the way people dress when they come to work. Yeah, I would say I think it's important for you to show your personality in interviews, but not to the point where you're imposing it on the culture of the company. So I was just my goddaughter in London. She's at this amazing company. It's a wonderful, wonderful atmosphere. They have a huge roof garden. I mean, enormous roof garden where they all can go out there and have meetings or take their laptops and work from there. And they've got, I mean, it's a real millennial atmosphere. And she fits it perfectly. As soon as they met her, they said, oh, yes, you're going to be right for this. But she did her homework before she went for the interview. So she knew what they were looking for and how she was going to fit in with that. I think that's a really important part of a job interview, not just to go and expect the company to tell you what they want, but come in and offer them something. Hmm. So when you say the culture is not ripped jeans, what else would you say is the culture of this company and philanthropic? Yeah, it's being a team player is very, very important. But we don't have a lot of angst around here. Obviously, there are things because people have issues and personal things happen, but we like to work together and support each other. And it's not about competition. We don't foster that. I don't believe, unlike a lot of other companies, including somebody who will be nameless, that the more stress you create within a work environment, the better job you get from people. I don't believe that at all. And I think if people need to come to work and feeling happy about being here, they'll give you their best. Yes. And that's what we try to do. What is the best career advice you've ever gotten? always do what you say you're going to do. <laughs> I keep going back to that, but it's really true. Always do what you say you're going to do. I try to ask all of my guests, especially those who are as successful as you, mm. to share a time in their professional lives when they really struggled. In my case, I was fired twice in my 40s. So what was it mm. that happened to you in your career, something perhaps that you've never shared before? And most importantly, how you persevered and a lesson that you learned in the process? It's a very easy one for me because it was a devastating experience. When I was in the entertainment world, one of the opportunities I had was to work on a musical based on an English book called Wind in the Willows. And I wrote what's called in a musical, when you write the libretto, it's called the book. So I wrote the book for that show and we did it. We started in, at the Folger in Washington and it was a musical based on Wind in the Willows. And it was a big success. It was in a small theater and it was beautiful. And so then they thought, okay, well, let's take it to Broadway. And in my heart, I knew that it wasn't going to work for Broadway. But, you know, how can you give up that opportunity? So it was a different world for me. And we somehow got enough financing and pulled it together. But I knew I would sit in rehearsals and I would know in my heart we were going to flop. And we did, big time. We lasted one week. The reviews were scathing. And I knew a lot of people in the industry at the time because, of course, I'd been casting and producing. And so 
people knew me. And in the entertainment business, people tend to celebrate your failures. So it was very, very hard. The public humiliation from something like that is devastating. It was the first time I can remember since a little girl falling into my father's arms and just sobbing until I couldn't stop. I couldn't even go to the closing. I was devastated at the things people said, the meanness, the public meanness. The um, schadenfreude, is that the word? Yeah, it was awful. And I didn't know how I'd ever recover from it. <laughs> Strangely, a year later, we got nominated for a Tony. Of course, we didn't win, but it was just such a crazy time. I'm sorry to interrupt. Mm. I just want to let our listeners know that I'm not the one that's snoring, listening to you. This is Cookie, your adorable dog, who is clearly not enthralled by this interview at all. (laughs) So you were nominated for Tony, Tony, but this was an incredibly embarrassing... Oh, it was the worst thing. And and it wasn't just about for me, but those people that I loved that were involved in the show, devastating for them too, and to watch their pain was awful. And what it left us all was totally broke because we'd put so much of ourselves into the show and we hadn't worked except on that. You know, we was getting paid. And so that was how I ended up having to take a check for $5,000 to start the company because I had no resources. None of my friends did either because they lost them all on the show. So what did I learn from that? Well, I learned that there is life after death, that sometimes those kinds of failures are more important in the sense that they make you reassess and is really what propelled me, even though I did continue on in business for a while after that. It really was the one that propelled me into doing something that I felt was more constructive and healthy and better for my temperament. I also learned who my friends were and who they weren't. I remember one couple that I thought were really good friends of mine saying they weren't going to see me for a while because they felt that failure was contagious. You know, it was a very interesting time to go through. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And I actually think that having been released from my contract with CNN, they didn't renew my contract and having to reinvent myself. And then the first job that I had after I had been a journalist for 20 years, getting fired from that job were tremendous gifts to me that have helped me get to where I am today to a much, much better place. place, And like you, I feel that I also learn who my real friends were. Because when you're suddenly not on camera and you're not a correspondent for CNN, suddenly you're not invited to the parties and, you know, things like that, things that to be honest, I didn't really enjoy. care about, yes. But there were people who suddenly no longer called me. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I know. And then when you reach the other side of it and you do have some success in life, you find there are people calling you that you think, is this real? That's another difficult thing to deal with is who is my friend and who isn't? And who can I trust and who can't I? All of those experiences again add up so that you can start to make your own decisions, informed decisions about learning how to say no. I remember when I read the Steve Jobs biography, he said, part of the success in business, what's more important in learning to say no to things than to say yes to things. 
And that's really true. It's hard, especially when you're starting. Feel you want to say yes to everything. Of course, you can't follow through on it, then it's useless. It just undermines everything. So learning how to say no is really important. Limited resources. You've yeah. limited bandwidth. So yeah. you have to yeah. really be focused. Yeah. Absolutely. So that comes back to always do what you say you're going to do. Because if you say yes to everything, you can't possibly follow through on everything. So that learning what is important to you and what's going to move things along or not, and what's going to be valuable to you or not, is a very important part of the process. Well, speaking of things that you have found valuable throughout your life, learning, mm. if you could go back to NYU and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, Jane, mm. what advice would you give yourself? Oh, Uh I suppose I would give myself the advice it's not life or death. If you're not enjoying the learning process, then find something else that you you do enjoy learning. When I was at NYU, it was before the iPads and looking everything up, so I had to go to the library. And I actually loved that. I loved going to the library and being in that quiet environment, surrounded by the people who were learning and feeling a sense of almost camaraderie that we were all in this together. I think there's something that young people now don't have so much because everything is so available on the screen. So I would definitely tell myself, don't give that part up. It's one thing I didn't do enough of when I was in university, and I wish I had. So maybe this advice I would give myself is to interact more with those people who are there for the same purpose. I make the most of my professors. They're open. I go in and see them and talk to them. When I did that at SUNY, it really helped me get through some tough courses. And they were so happy for me to be there and take advantage of that. And I got to know my professors really well. At NYU, I was so intimidated by the huge university and so many people, and a lot of them much younger than me because I was there in my mid to late 20s, that I would have taken more advantage of those things and not be so feeling that I had to do it all myself. So there were people there who really wanted to help. And it's also about your establishing a professional network, people that you can tap into throughout the course of your life. Correct. That is so important. And it's something I missed, not having those connections. It's a wonderful opportunity for young people now when they go to university to make sure that they maintain those relationships when they leave. My husband, for example, went to Stanford. He's still going to Stanford reunions. He's still interacting with the people that he met there. And it gives him a huge feeling of connectedness and brotherhood. And I envy that. Absolutely. So that was the last official <coughs> time for coffee question. But I have a very special one yeah. that I would like to ask you because I know I would kick myself <laughs> if I had missed this opportunity. To say, Jane Iredale, will you please look at my skin and tell me (laughs) what I should do? I'm a 55-year-old woman, and what would you recommend for me? First of all, you look really amazing. But with your coloring, obviously, sun protection is the most important thing you can do. But I'm amazed, actually, that you've been able to limit sun damage the way you have. You're so sweet. You're you're so sweet. I have to say thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you so much. For making time for coffee and time (laughs) for tea with me today. And thank you, Cookie, for for being being such a sweet girl (laughs) and for joining us and providing a little levity at very important moments. (laughs) 
but it has been such a pleasure. Oh, and I too. want to send a big shout out to Ricky. Oh, yes. Way off there in Tokyo. Yes. And thank her for making the introduction. I wish you continued success thank you, Andrea. in all that you do. Yes. And likewise, continued success. And everybody who's been taking the time to listen to us today, it's all in your hands. It is. But it's up to you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.